something. Uh, for once in my life, I think that an email that I sent out might have had some effect. So, um, I'm glad that you recognize the importance of being in NPCM and getting educated broadly in neuroscience. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Simon Lovestone, who is a, a, a relatively new recruit to Oxford. We're very fortunate to persuade him to move from the Institute of Psychiatry, where he's Professor of Old Age Psychiatry, beginning of the year or end of last year? Beginning of the year. Simon is a world expert on Alzheimer's disease, and one of the areas that strategically we wanted to develop in Oxford, having a lot of work research in other areas of neurodegeneration, was particularly to expand what we did in Alzheimer's disease. So it's very important to us uh, in Oxford to be able to get somebody of Simon's stature. And he's both a, he started the life so because I think it's always inspirational for the younger people in the audience to sort of know how people get to where they uh, arrive at. And he studied microbiology at Sheffield. He then did a medical degree at Southampton, uh, a PhD in biochemistry. That was at the IOP, was it? Uh, and then he progressed upwards um, at the Institute of Psychiatry. Um, he was also very much involved with biomedical research centers, which some of you all know about. There was a, uh, the only psychiatric biomedical research set, uh, uh, center was based at the Institute of Psychiatry in the Maudsley Hospital, which is world famous uh, psychiatric hospital. Uh, and his main interests have been in uh, tau and intracellular signaling in Alzheimer's disease in genetics and biomarkers. And so he's going to talk today about uh, blood-based biomarkers in Alzheimer's disease. What do we want? And most importantly, of course, uh, when do we want it? Because we want to have something available to diagnose these patients when there's some new treatment that comes along that hopefully Simon and his colleagues in the uh, recently acquired Drug Discovery Center that he's um, uh, Oxford got uh, 10 million pounds from UK, Alzheimer's UK, just a few months ago, and this would be one of three centres around the country that really get to look for new targets and new treatments for Alzheimer's disease. So, Simon. Chris, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be in Oxford, to be here specifically to see so many of you. Very kind introduction, thank you. You just got one thing wrong. Right, I was doing The trajectory has been down here after <laughs> <laughs> meaning, seriously, actually, the best time at my career was when I was doing that PhD, and uh, since then it's been increasing amount of administration. I don't want to put anybody on. <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to talk about blood-based biomarkers, uh, and I'll try and address this question about um, what exactly do we want, and I'll explain what I mean by that, and, and when exactly do we want it. Um, but the, the first question is, do we want it? Well, seemingly, yes. I just had a little look the other day at the numbers of publications. It seems as if you want to boost your CV, this is a good area to work in, because that's a near exponential increase in the numbers of publications on biomarkers in Alzheimer's disease since about 1990. So it looks like this is uh, an area of considerable interest. Um, and the reason why it's of considerable interest is kind of obvious. I'm not going to delay. Can you hear me at the back, by the way, if I speak at this kind of level? I shall try and go up a little then. So I think it's really obvious why we want it. I'm not going to belabor the point. But this is a disorder that affects huge numbers of people, costs a vast amount of money, £20 billion, supposedly, per year in the UK. Actually, 
another figure, it's 1% of the world's GDP is spent on this disorder, which is just extraordinary. And the bottom line here is the most important one. There were a couple of papers published uh, last year now, a couple of phase three trials. Those two trials uh, cost $2 billion, and they were failure. Now, the tragedy is not so much that the drugs failed, the trials didn't show an effect, but we learned nothing from those trials. It's shocking, really. These were trials that were done. We don't even know whether the drugs that were being trialed in those phase three experiments were are of any benefit whatsoever. We've learned absolutely zipples from that experiment. And that a $2 billion failure to learn anything is not something that is sustainable. I mean, seriously not sustainable by governments or by the pharmaceutical industry. And there's probably only one more attempt possible at that level of failure before the pharmaceutical industry move away. And I'm really not exaggerating about that. Much of the talk that I hear in pharma at the moment is um, how long are we going to stay in this field? But there is a solution. <laughs> and it's very simple, really, uh, conceptually. We just need to do three things. First, we need to diversify our target uh, engagement. So we need to think about different kinds of treating Alzheimer's disease. So almost the entire field has focused on amyloid-based therapies. I actually think that's a really good idea to develop amyloid-based therapies. But it would be helpful if we had something else as well to work on. I'm not going to talk any more about that. That's going to be at least um, a large part of what we do in the Oxford Drug Development Institute. I'm very happy to give another seminar on um, <laughs> mechanisms and, and how we can diversify target development. But the second thing we need to do is we need to begin to do those therapies or treatments, trials, earlier in the disease course in prodromal phase. So as most of you, I'm sure, will know, there's at least 10 years when the disease, the pathology, is affecting the brain before there are symptoms. Those $2 billion failure trials were done when the disease was already well established. By the time the disease is well enough established that you've got symptoms, you've already lost the significant part of your brain. It's asking a lot for any small molecule or antibody-based <coughs> approach to somehow restore missing brains. It's really not going to happen. But that 10-year prodromal period, if you had an intervention that was effective in that period, you would in effect have a preventative strategy, which is astonishing. So it's, it's a real opportunity for secondary prevention, and I think that that is the goal we're aiming for. And we need to do trials more rapidly, and with earlier readouts. So currently what happens, you do phase one, and then you do some nominal phase two, some dose finding, but in this field there's no real proof of concept in phase two and the drug trials slip seamlessly through to phase three and waste millions and millions, if not billions, of dollars because that proper proof of concept has never actually been tested. So we need to do different kinds of trials, uh, more rapid, give a readout, a signal, might not be an efficacy signal, but it might be a proof of concept signal that gives you the confidence to move forward. And for these two things, I think we need biomarkers. 
So specifically, if you want to do clinical trials for disease modification that are in secondary prevention phase, by definition, you need a biomarker. So if you want to do a primary prevention trial, you can do it in the general population. Well, good luck with that. That's going to be colossally expensive. But if you want to do a secondary prevention trial, when there is pathology in the brain, but there are no clinical symptoms, then by definition, you need a biomarker. So you need biomarkers for preclinical detection. Can we identify that pathology? You need biomarkers to select patients and to stratify them. That's obviously overlapping with preclinical detection. It's not quite the same thing. And then what you really need is a biomarker that is predictive of what's going to happen to people. Simply having a pathology doesn't necessarily mean you're going to progress at any given rate. So I think we need specifically those kind of biomarkers. Let me illustrate it in a, the same kind of issue in a slightly different way. Currently, we do trials down here. Most trials that are done in this field are done in people with established dementia. Increasingly, there are some trials that are bravely trying to work up in the MCI, mild cognitive impairment space. Now, statisticians, I've seen which broker, statisticians really love this because there's a slope. And if there's a slope, you can measure change. So purely with a statistician's eye, that's a really good place to do a trial. But from a biological point of view, it's not a very good place to do a trial of a disease modification agent because the neurons have already gone. What I want to do as a biologist is a trial up here. But the problem up here is that the slope of anything that is measurable is nearly flat. So that gives us a fundamental problem. How can you do a trial when you can't really effectively measure change with any of the measures that we've got today. So this is the problem, and this is now the specifics about the kinds of biomarkers that I think we need. And I would like to stop talking about biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease, because I think that's an almost meaningless phrase, and start thinking about the specific biomarkers that we need. So I would argue that there are two for these trials that I'm really interested in. Can we find a biomarker to stratify a preclinical, so clinically unaffected population, or nearly unaffected, I'll come back to what I mean by that, but can we stratify them by some marker? And can we have a marker that measures change when the clinical slope is effectively flat? Now some would argue, yes we can, we can some would argue that we can do that today using PET imaging for amyloid, using CSF markers of A-beta and tau. And in fact, those markers are now burnt into the latest iteration of clinical diagnostics, where um, groups are beginning to come up with ideas about prodromal disease that go before mild cognitive impairment. So this is pre-clinical Alzheimer's disease. And these criteria, this is a US set of criteria, and a European set of criteria, then, you know, to all extents and purposes, they're the same. They're basically trying to identify some memory problems that might be indicative of a problem, even if within the normal sort of range, accompanied by biomarkers. But there's an obvious problem with these kind of biomarkers. 
this one is relatively expensive and relatively small proportions of the world's population are um, close enough to a PET scanner to have PET imaging. And this is relatively invasive. I mean, it's not as invasive as it was when I was training as a doctor with those big rigid needles. It's obviously much better today, but nonetheless, it's still fairly invasive when you think about doing this in substantial numbers of frail elderly people. Nonetheless, those are the two markers, that the best that we've got today, and they are being used in clinical trials. But what I would really like to do is to find a biomarker from a more accessible fluid, from blood or from urine, or perhaps a microbiome type biomarker, and I've spared, you know, you're all eating a lunch, I won't say where we'll collect the swabs from, but that kind of thing. Will these biomarkers be good enough for this? I frankly, I mean, I don't know is the honest answer, but I think it's implausible. It's unlikely that a peripheral fluid biomarker would go straight to being a preclinical deception biomarker. But it might be that a peripheral fluid biomarker could triage elderly people in the population to a more uh, specific test. So what that tells me is we need relatively sensitive tests because they could be part of a process where specificity was added in later. And in clinical practice, this is normal, right? So if you have uh, many diseases, take most cancers, you don't go along and you have you don't go along to your doctor and have a single test and get given a diagnosis. You're usually on a pathway to diagnosis that will involve multiple tests. And I think that is what is most likely to happen in this field. Having said that, when we started uh, doing this work um, some 10 years or so ago, I just assumed that there would be no blood-based biomarker. I mean, why would there be? This is a complex disorder. It's behind the blood-brain barrier. Blood is a highly uh, diverse tissue, it's complex tissue, and I just thought it would be intrinsically unlikely that you would find anything. But nonetheless, people were talking about it, and more importantly, I've got a grant to have a look. <laughs> so I thought, well, we better have a look, having got this funding with a bit of arm waving. Um, so we did the simplest study I could think of. It was still quite a lot of work, but in order to try and prove the null hypothesis that there was no signal in blood, we did a very large, for them, two-dimensional gel electrophoresis study. This is quite time-consuming, laborious work. So this is on fairly large gels, and the proteins, you're looking at proteins here, each one of these spots might represent anything between but unusually one, but quite often up to a half a dozen proteins. And they're separated in two dimensions. In that dimension, they're separated by charge. And in this dimension, they're separated by size. So you pull the proteins along a pH gradient, and then you pull them down an electrical gradient. And because this is a matrix, it, it sieves by its size. So all of these, you get this kind of fingerprint. So we did this on... Um, I can't remember now, but I, from, from what I remember, we did it on about 50 or so subjects, uh, some with Alzheimer's disease, some without Alzheimer's disease, and rather than doing any complicated proteomics, we simply scanned those images 
morphed them on top of each other using exactly the same approach that many of you will be using in MRI type studies where you co-register MRI brains. So we used exactly the same kind of thing and just looked to see if there were differences. It turned out that there were differences. So we then did the statistics on those differences and there was a p-value <coughs> suggesting a small difference, but nonetheless a statistical difference, simply between the image analysis of the pattern of spot distribution of proteins in blood comparing Alzheimer's disease to control. So I failed to prove the null hypothesis. So we then took those gels, cut out the spots that were contributing to that signal, and did tandem mass spectrometry and found some proteins. One of them was complement factor H. So we then went to an immune capture approach in now quite a large, and this is still 10 years later, it's still very large for the literature. Most studies are a couple of dozen subjects, so this is 500 now, comparing Alzheimer's disease to controls, vascular dementia, NMD, and Huntington's. And you can see that people with Alzheimer's disease have somewhat more complement factor H in their blood than people with other neurodegenerative conditions or controls. Now, at that point, and this was the precise point, I thought, do you know, this is actually interesting. Because having failed to prove the null hypothesis, I still thought that was a bit of a boring result. But biologically, this is a really interesting result. Because at the time we were doing this, there was another disorder that had been associated with a SNP in the, in the gene for complement factor H, CFH. And that association was an incredibly powerful association. So most complex genes have a weak association with their, uh, sorry, most complex diseases have a weak association with some gene or other. This was a very strong association. I think even today, it's one of the strongest gene to complex disorder associations. And that disorder was age-related macular degeneration. And some of you will know that there are only two disorders of A-beta pathology. One of them is Alzheimer's disease, and the other is age-related macular degeneration, where in the bruising, the retina, I know there is some dispute over this, but almost certainly in the bruising uh, of AMD, there is A-beta deposits derived from amyloid precursor protein, the same protein that gives rise to amyloid in the brain in AD. So for a biologist, this is now really interesting. You have a genomic association between AMD and CFH. You have a proteomic association between AD and CFH, both of them A-beta disorders. This suggests some common biology that is interesting to explore. However, there was a problem with that study, a really fundamental problem with that study, and with every other similar study that has ever been published, including from my own group, including, I would add, almost all of the genomic studies in this area. And the problem is this. You want to find a biomarker for preclinical disease. It's people without disease pathology, but without clinical symptoms. In the study I just showed you, the complement factor H study, which group do you think those individuals were in? The case group or the control group? 
and the control group. So how stupid is it to do a study where what the thing that you're looking for is in the control group? I mean, it's just nuts. And it, once that kind of idea dawned on me, it took me a while, but once it dawned on me, I realized that this was really stupid way to design studies for pre-clinical biomarker recognition. Arguably, I'd add it's not a terribly clever way to do the genomic studies either, but I'll leave the geneticists to make their own mistakes. We tried then, we thought really hard to try and design an experiment that would allow us to identify a pre-clinical marker. And we, did, we came up with this name, so we, we do nearly all of our work now using an endophenotype approach. So in an endophenotype approach, we're trying to find a phenotype, a characteristic, which is representative of the case in point, representative of preclinical AD. And in this particular study, we chose two. We chose hippocampal atrophy, and we chose rate of progression. So we argued that um, if you've got more atrophy in your hippocampus, you've got more disease, fairly obvious. But we also argued that if you decline more quickly, you've got more aggressive disease. I don't know what that means, but we just sort of thought it might be an indicator of how much pathology is in the brain if, if you're progressing quickly. So in this study, everybody that was in the study had mild AD. So we had no <coughs> controls. And we started off binarizing two different populations, one by the size of the hippocampus, the other by rate of decline. And in subsequent studies, we've used a continuous variable analysis, which is somewhat more powerful. So we did the study. We uh, did a 2D gel study again, identified some spots from both of these independent studies. And we said, in advance, we will take forward proteins that appear in both, and we make a prediction in advance a priori prediction that in separate studies with different groups of individuals, we'd expect a protein that correlates with an endophenotype to also correlate with cortical atrophy, uh, correlate with cognition, and correlate with speed of decline in an independent group. So we did the study, and we found a protein called clusterin uh, came out of both of these studies. We also found, by the way, some other proteins, and I'll come back to these proteins later. The other thing I want to point out that we published this, we published the actual primary data, um, but I'm always surprised at how rarely people spot, spot the point, in a way, of publishing the primary data. There were multiple clustering spots. So we iterated in the, in the paper, I think these are there, there were multiple spots of clustering, which tells you something tells you that you're not just measuring the protein clustering, you're measuring something about that protein as well, a post-translational modification. And we're now trying to find out what that post-translational modification is. And it may be that it's the post-translational modification of clustering that is what we should be looking at rather than clustering itself. Nonetheless, we started off by looking at clustering and all of our a priori um, predictions came true, so we found a correlation. And again, I'm pointing out the numbers here. A couple of hundred individuals um, when we included MCI, hundred when we're just looking at MMSE, and the a priori criteria all held true. We found that the amount of clustering in the blood 
at the time of venupuncture was associated with subsequent decline of these individuals, but was also associated with decline before the blood sex It's not that surprising. These aren't independent events. However quick you're declining up to a random point is a fairly good prediction of what will happen thereafter. Nonetheless, the a priori were true. We then went beyond the a priori predictions. So we worked with the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging, who have an interesting set of subjects, patients, participants, that have had PET imaging of amyloid, and then subsequently followed up, and had had blood samples taken 10 years earlier. And we found a very weak, but nonetheless significant, uh, correlation between the amount of clustering in the blood 10 years before the PET scan, even though at the time of the PET scan these people were still clinically normal. So we're finding the amount of clustering in your blood is a predictor of the accumulation of amyloid in your brain, even while you're still clinically normal. We then did the hardest test of all, and one I still don't understand the results of, still a puzzle to me, uh, but it has been replicated by others. That is, we looked in a transgenic animal model. So the problem about the human experiment is that you know, these people, they might be different through some other compound that we don't yet know what it is. But in those animals, the only thing different between those animals and their littermates is they've got amyloid in their brain. So when we looked at the <coughs> earliest stage those animals have amyloid deposits, they're still quite healthy, and we looked at clustering in the blood, it was elevated. I don't understand that. So somehow there's a signal transmitted from brain to blood in an animal model. Don't know what it is. It could be clustering comes out of the brain, comes into the blood. It might be that. It might be some other signal. But I think it's a really interesting observation. So we published it. Now at the time we published this, um, I was part of a big um, GWAS study run by Julie Williams in Cardiff. And I confess I was fishing in the uh, I confess because I thought, I think it was a week though. Anyway, <laughs> the mayfly were up, so I could be forgiven. And I'm on the river, and I've actually just looked at trout, and my phone goes off. I'm kind of doing this kind of thing. And it was Julie Williams on the phone who said she'd just gone through the first um, analysis, or just been given the first analysis of the large GWAS, the first of the very big GWAS studies. So she said, so I obviously said, you know, well, it's interesting, what have you got? And she said, um, you can see echoey, well, yes, I guess you would do. What have you really got? She said, well, there's some stuff we don't really know what it means, but the gene that comes out top is clustering. Is that of interest? I nearly fell in, of course, um, because we'd found from proteomics clustering associated with AD. So this is Julie's study here, and at the time she was doing it, uh, the French group were also doing a GWAS, and they also found clustering. So after APOE, clustering is the gene most associated with late-onset Alzheimer's disease. It really is quite a remarkable set of observations from both proteomics and genomics, you're finding clustering strongly associated with AD. I would point out that by some clever design, we managed to find that out with about 100 people and a small grant. And uh, these two studies 
consume multiple tens of millions and 30,000 individuals, but that's just the advantage of doing endophenotype design. So what have we done since? Well, uh, we were working in protein sciences and we protected intellectual property on about 30 proteins contained in those two papers that we've then gone on to replicate. So why did we protect intellectual property? It's something called the value of death. So you find all these findings, and what you want is an assay that you can actually use in a clinical trial. Producing that assay, it's difficult to know exactly, but it's, it's in the region of 5 to 15 million pounds. Now, nobody is going to fund that uh, unless there is a mechanism of monetizing the result. So if you, if you just publish without thinking about it, unfortunately, nobody can make money from it and the funding streams are not there. Governments don't fund this work. It's only companies that fund this kind of asset development. And you enter the value of debt and you'll never see your discovery come to any kind of utility. So that's why we did it. I want to tell you, uh, in the interest of um, probity, I'm an inventor on this pattern. And we've licensed it to Millipore. You can buy it. And if you buy it for research, then and a percentage of that money comes back to my old university at King's, and a percentage of that percentage comes to me. I've uh, committed to giving all of my um, all of the money I get from that, or have got from that, to Alzheimer's research UK, which I've done. Make that. <laughs> <laughs> Before you get too enthused at my altruism and generosity, you do need to know that the amount that I've received and have handed over all of it to AIUK is £150. I mean, the serious point about that is you need to do this in order to enable somebody else to at least recover investment. Uh, you don't, you seriously don't do it to make, make any money. So these are the proteins that are in the patent. Every one of them has been discovered and then replicated. The vast majority came out of the studies I've just told you about, some from the literature, and they've all been replicated. So this is discovery, replication, and in multiple times, serial replication. So then we did what we're coming close now to qualification studies. So we now want to do a study which is closer to the situation where it would actually be used. Which, if you remember at the beginning, I said, where do we actually want to use these tests? Are uh, in clinical trials. So we took a large series of subjects, patients, whatever, uh, participants, about a thousand or so individuals, uh, to ask a series of interrelated questions. So first we wanted to know, is there an association with disease? We found an association between the protein APOE and the protein uh, complement factor H. We replicated those previously found. We found associations with slightly larger numbers with atrophy. So this is all adding to the weight that there is a signal there, even if it's not a, um, even if each one of those proteins doesn't uh, show the signal in every test. Uh, and then we see an association with cognition. And then we did the acid test. So the absolute acid test is, can you take a series of people with mild cognitive impairment, who are all identical at this point, uh, do the blood test, follow them up, 
And within a trials period, so in other words, about 18 months, can you predict which are the ones that are going on to convert um, into uh, dementia? This is a receiver operated curve. The green line is the line you can't see it very well. It runs up here. And it's protein plus acrylene genotype. And the red line is protein only. That's the no difference line. So it looks like this protein has some utility in predicting short-term conversion to mild cognitive impairment. You can pass this all sorts of different ways. So I've got the positive predictive values and negative predictive values up there, and those are the actual individuals in that final acid test. Not many of them, um, but this remains one of the largest uh, data sets that we've yet got in order to test that. So there aren't that many studies with well-curated samples with that follow-up period to conversion. So those are the proteins that remained in the final model. Um, by and large, these are proteins, these are acute phase uh, proteins or proteins of um, inflammation. Some of these proteins, like transthyresin, are amyloid binding proteins, which may be interesting. And as you can see, clustering remains in the model. So that's one approach. I just want to tell you about an entirely different kind of approach to finding biomarkers. And that is where you think you know what it is that you want to find. So in other words, you're now hypothesis testing rather than hypothesis generating and then replicating. In a study I'm not going to tell you anything about, you just have to take my word for this, we derived a pathway that we think is a pathogenic pathway in our time. We now have a moderately advanced drug discovery program with compounds going into animals um, looking for therapeutics. So we know what the pathway is, we think, because amyloid clustering, protein called Dukov, the non-canonical wind signaling to some transcription factors, and, and hence to toxicity. Another time I can tell you why we're very confident of all of that. But given that we know the proteins we want to find, we can then go looking for them. And we did this with a really interesting technology. <coughs> it's a technology that I think is a transformative, disruptive technology for proteomics. Technology that I hope... So, I've started the sentence, so I'll finish it. I'll just ask you to be discreet with this. But it's a technology that I hope will come to Oxford before too long company that's based at the moment only in Boulder, Colorado, called Somalogic. Basically, they use actinas. So actinas are 15-round oligonucleotides, and they bind proteins. So DNA binds proteins, it has to bind histones and so on. turns out that little sequences of DNA are very specific in binding different proteins, and there's some additional magic chemistry they've added to stabilize. Because it's a protein that is capturing, sorry, because it's a DNA that's capturing the protein, you can do two things. First, you can spot these things in bigger ways. And secondly, you can select that DNA from huge libraries. And so you can select against any protein that you happen to have recombinant protein for. And then you've got a really easy readout. So currently, this array, protein array, measures um, 1,100 proteins if you go and buy it, but we're using their 
next phase. It's actually 3,000 proteins in a study that we were analysing over the weekend. And some of the proteins I'm interested in are on the array. So we then went and asked, do the proteins show any correlation um, with each other and with disease phenotypes? So first, my pathway predicts that the KK isoforms will correlate with clustering. And more or less, they do. DKK-like one at a very, very low p-value. And then we asked, do any of these clustering on the Actima array or the DKK isoforms correlate with cognition? They do, uh, with conversion to MCI, at least DKK3 does. And then we did some clustering analysis where we correlate all of the proteins with each other. And when you do that, you get modules of activity. And when we look at these modules of activity, they're driven by biologically similar isoforms. So DKK1 and DKK4 are biologically identical, and they're both in this cluster of proteins. So we can begin to use this approach, not only to find a biomarker that might accompany the drugs we're trying to produce, but actually to tease out the biology. So that's the end of the sciencey bit. I just want to run through some of the uh, more structural stuff that's happening at the moment that, um, that I hope you'll be interested in, and I hope some of you might want to come and uh, do some work on some of the infrastructures that we're setting up. <coughs> so in this, I, I've kind of hinted at one of the big problems that we've always faced is the ability to um, do replication studies. There simply aren't enough studies out there that have collected the samples that we need and the data that we need to do replication. So one approach to that is an IMI, so Innovative Medicines Initiative program that I'm a lead for that is attempting to be a data aggregator in Europe. It's called the European Medical Information Framework. And this slide shows you that it's a headache for me. So trying to manage these kind of groupings of companies and labs and groups is, is no mean feat. So we have an annual general assembly, just where we get our, where we, you know, so it's a collaborator, not even a collaborator, it's a co-applicants group. Our co-applicants group this year in December will run over five days and we'll have over 300 people attending before we had to say we haven't got space for anymore. That's just the applicants and people working on it. So these are complicated things. So this is what we're trying to do. When you start off, when I started off, you're looking at using omics, large numbers of biomarkers, and basically small individuals, numbers of individuals, because um, it's very expensive. What you need to do as you move through to utility is pass refine the number of biomarkers so you get fewer and fewer molecules that you're looking at, but you're looking in more and more people. So eventually you'd want to look in near population level samples. So that's what this European Medical Information Framework is designed to try and do, amongst other things. It's composed of three programs in the first instance. An informatics platform and biomarkers for metabolic disease and biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. And I'm, I'm very, very quickly uh, going to spin through the ways that we have of aggregating data. So first, my big problem is 
I have a suspicion that there is a set of market, a set of samples somewhere in Europe uh, that would be good for what I need. You know, where there's the right data, they've been kept in the right way. Uh, and the only way I've got of accessing those is to go to PubMed, see if I can find a published article, see if I can work out from the article whether they're likely to have the samples I want, see if I can find out who to contact, contact that person, hope they reply, that process normally takes six months or so, and the answer is usually no. <laughs> ah, it's so frustrating. So the first thing we're doing is setting up a fingerprinting catalogue. There's a catalogue of cohorts in Europe where they, we just collect the metadata of what the cohort has got. So we're collecting this kind of metadata, is about 800 variables that we're collecting. And after a year, we had cohorts with uh, some 10,000 or more subjects in. So all of these are there. <coughs> I can now go on the browser and say, I, I need a cohort that happens to have plasma and MRI scans. And find out who's contact, rules of engagement, and it works. So we're about to do a study next week. We'll start on looking at a thousand samples where I also want CSF, tau, and A beta data. Um, normally that would take me years to try and find the right samples. Six weeks from asking the question, I have the samples in my lab. So this really, really works. And we're going to scale up. We should get to about 50,000 participants in the next three years. What we all start off wanting to do, though, is stick the whole thing on the same computer. And what I've learned is that's very, very difficult to do. So we've, we've got a process to do that. It's a piece of um, it's a spreadsheet, really, called Transmart. And we've put the first 3,000 or so subjects on that. It's really difficult to do because you have to do all that semantic interoperability stuff. So what I call MMSE might not be, you, you might call it something else and every single variable you have to go through all of it. It's a pain. And we'll probably stop doing this soon because it's just so time consuming. But it's a pretty neat piece of software because you can do drag and drop analytics with the data that's in there. So that's a survival curve by APOE genotype. But this is the big goal that the process was set up to do. Can we aggregate across big data sets? So the data sets that we're accessing are medical records of over 50 million Europeans and we can access all of those. We've got a process whereby, um, so I'm not going to explain this slide in detail for the primary reason I don't really understand it, but there's very clever computer scientists who help, the essential problem is we can't move this data, so we're not allowed to move it. There's legislation that prevents you moving it. There's ethics that prevent you moving it. And most of these data sets are too big to move. You, you can't put them down any kind of wire. So you can't move the data. So what we actually have is a private remote search environment in the cloud, hosted by a trusted third party called Custodic. You can submit your query. Query comes into here. It gets a distributed networks analysis using software called Jaboa then returns it, it gets analysed and you get the results of that analysis without ever actually getting your hands on the primary data sets. So that's the European Medical Information Framework and it's collecting data from all over Europe and the biggest single data set it will have access to is the dementia 
um, UK Dimensions platform, which was launched the day before yesterday. So this is also a data aggregation set of about 2 million people. We have 10,000 people from UK Biobank based here. So UK Biobank, 500,000 people, 100,000 of them are having MRI at the moment. Of that, 10,000 will have repeat MRI. Samples collected, lots more phenotype data collected. This is what the UK Dimensions platform is. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip that. And the way we're going to follow these people up primarily is by linking to electronic medical records. So we established at King's a system. We established a system to extract data from the electronic medical record, including the stuff that the doctors and nurses write, the narrative or text data, where most of the information is. There's, there's remarkably little information encoded data in an electronic medical record. So that worked very well. You've extended it to five sites, including Oxford and Cambridge and, and two other sites in London. That's working. We switched it on, I think, about six weeks ago now. And we've got funding as part of the Dementia platform to roll this out to 15 sites associated with UK Biobank collection sites. So that will be completed by probably spring 2016, led by Mike Dennis, who came with me to Oxford. And um, there's a SWATS team place. So I got funding for a couple of people who know how to use this system. They are now fully trained, and they're allowed to work anywhere other than King's. So they're trained by King's, but they will be working in the other London sites, Oxford and Cambridge. So I say this, I'm blading the quote slightly, you know, this is available for you to use now. So any mental health records, but if you have a question that you think could be addressed on electronic medical records on about a million people in the southeast, you can do that research now, and you can also have people to help you. Uh, they might even do the bulk of the heavy lifting for you. Now, a question everybody always asks uh, is, is the data in the electronic medical record any good? We all know doctors can't write, and what they write is rubbish. It's, it's low quality information compared to what all you write, which is you know high quality research data. So this is data that Rob Stewart has collected. This is mini mental state examination. And this is years. And this is all collected using natural language processing from narrative text. So search and retrieval, and then. Um, natural language processing on that narrative text. derived in many mental states, you can see that there's a decline in MMC up to this point, when people are given to an episode, they may get a little bit better, and then they then get a little bit worse. Let me share an anecdote with you. Um, so this is specifically for Richard. About 15 years ago, you won't remember this, Richard, but about 15 years ago, you and I were in Birmingham, I seem to remember, at an ethics approval board. And you were going for approval of the AD2000 study. I was going for approval of the biomarker study. I just, uh, I just pronounced them. At the time, we just discussed, at the time, there was a great deal of controversy about whether the cholinesterase inhibitors did any good or not. And that controversy, I think it's fair to say, has continued uh, through multiple studies, some of which uh, don't all show exactly the same thing. It's one way of putting it. 
And that's why NICE has prevaricated at times over whether it's of any use. Well, that's what actually happens in the real world to people with Alzheimer's disease when they're given to that There's a couple of things I want to point out. First, the error bars are quite high. Secondly, this pattern, and actually the size of the difference is what most of the pivotal trials show. But most importantly, this is from real-world data, not the rarefied data from the pivotal trials. But more importantly than that, it's actually from 2,500 patient years of data, which is actually eight times more than in the Cochrane database. That's from one hospital. So you can get eight times more than the entire world's literature from a single hospital. So this is really, really powerful data. Um, Admittedly, that just shows what the clinical trials show, but we can now begin asking questions that you can't answer from a clinical trial, such as how much does it cost to look after these people. So I'm going to finish. In, in UK Dementia's platform, we're doing some more biomarker stuff. Uh, we're going to stratify by polygenic risk score and preclinical disease evidence. We're going to use a number of uh, proprietary approaches, so we're going to measure amyloid using, uh, or this company is going to do it, called Araclon. Um, mesoscale discovery of turning some of the biomarkers that we've discovered into an assay, and we'll run that on large numbers of samples, and we're now going to run the somologic panel, I hope on 3,000 proteins on about 1,000 individuals, which will be about the largest study that, that they've done. Um, the other thing, just to tell you about briefly, the first patient enters this trial in, I hope, two weeks. Um, we, this is the most brainless study I've ever done. We're basically going to take every biomarker that anybody's ever thought of and do them all at once in the same individuals, and then we're going to repeat them. So we're going to do PET, we're going to do CSF, we're going to do MRI, electrophysiology, and so on. Uh, Giovanna Zamboni is leading this study from Oxford, and Claire Mackay is leading the uh, MRI, and it's a six-centre study across the UK. We're in feasibility phase, because some people argue that um, participants won't agree to have this done. We'll find out very soon whether they do or don't. I think they will. The aim is to find what is the best combination of measures that can be used in a clinical trial. Finally, uh, I'm little time because I just got off the plane from Washington where we've um, been discussing an interesting uh, proposal that emerged out of this meeting last June. So there's a meeting at NYAS where a small group of people came together really frustrated by the lack of progress in the field of Alzheimer's disease. To cut to the chase, what we agreed to do was to import a trials technology, if you like, adaptive trials, sometimes called Bayesian trials, from cancer. So this is the archetype trial, the iSpy2 trial, where basically it's a multi-armed trial with one placebo and multiple treatments. You have an intermediate phenotype. So halfway through the trial, you get an idea about which therapy is working. And then you take people from the arms that are not working and re-randomize them to the arms that are working and then run and you can roll the trial. So iSpy2 for breast cancer intends to keep on adding arms, dropping arms and rolling until the job is done. 
we want to do the same in Alzheimer's disease, so we proposed this general schema for which biomarkers are essential. So you need biomarkers to enter the trial, and you need to adapt on biomarkers. Um, so we put in a proposal to um, IMI. I actually think I'm here today because the official day and I, I've heard unofficially this has been awarded. So this is a 64 million euro uh, program that uh, I hope will be, uh, you know, I shouldn't jinx it, uh, starting um, next year to bring together lots of cohorts to have a very large register, people willing to take part in trials, um, a cohort study a little bit like uh, Giovanna's and then an adaptive trial. The meeting I've come back from from the US is we agreed yesterday that we won't just do this in, in Europe. We'll have a mirror site in the US and North America. NIH haven't promised to fund this, but they were there and they said if we can come up with a sensible enough proposal, they would be minded to listen, which is about as good as a funding body will ever say in advance. So in conclusion, I think a couple of take-home messages. First, design really matters. It's not so much about the technology you use, it's about how you design the experiment. And it isn't that always true. I think that blood-based biomarkers are possible, but I don't think we're fully there yet. And I think we need some big platforms to sustain this kind of work. It's got beyond the point where this is a single laboratory operation. So I started by asking the question of what do we want? And I'd like to stop talking about Alzheimer's disease biomarkers and instead just think specifically about biomarkers for a purpose. And the only purpose I'm really interested in is biomarkers that can be used in secondary prevention trials. I also asked when do we want it? Well, you can answer that question in a number of ways. When in the disease course, early. When practically, um, more or less tomorrow. So we've now got funding with designing trials predicated on some of these biomarkers that will start next year. So we have a piece of work to do to uh, finalise much of this work really very quickly. But it is really <coughs> worth asking, are we really sure that we want such a thing? So I'm being a bit disingenuous. I say that we want these things for research, we want them for clinical trials, and that is true. But it is a bit disingenuous if you don't pay attention to other potential uses. In MCI, in many clinics all over the country, people are coming, asking what's happening to me and what is going to happen to me over the next year, two years, three years. I think the kinds of tools that we're working on are coming close to the point where they could give people the information that they're asking for. But that is problematical. So here are two articles from The Guardian yesterday just to illustrate how problematical this is. The first, a considerable backlash against the government's clumsy effort to make diagnosis for Alzheimer's disease better, paying GPs to make positive diagnosis. What could possibly go wrong with that? Um, and then another article um, with the NHS now offering enhanced advice about the risks of breast cancer which is something that is for, for, for which there is a great deal of evidence of benefit 
something for which there is a therapy, yet even so this remains, quite rightly, highly controversial. So my answer is, do we really want it? I think we do, but we need to be mindful that it comes with some dilemmas. I've gone on too long, I'm sorry about that. I just want to thank uh, many people that I've worked with, some in particular that have moved with me, such as Alison Baird and Abdul Hyatt, that have been with me. I've worked with for many years. Thank you very much indeed.